Welcome back to the Commonwealth Classical Liberal Podcast. This pod, like the Classical Liberal Party of Virginia or the CLPVA, is a home for those who believe in open markets, open minds, and free people. Thanks for joining us today and each week. Please listen, subscribe, and share with others. So welcome back. Not each week necessarily. We did take some time off for Thanksgiving because we're thankful Americans deserve some time off. But I'm glad to be back this week to start a new discussion here and welcoming back Brian Dawson, Chris Frazier. Gentlemen, happy belated Thanksgiving to you. No need to talk about football today. Welcome back. Glad to have you here. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, happy, happy Thanksgiving to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, conspicuously, you don't want to talk about football because my Cowboys absolutely destroyed Washington Chris, this week. <laughs> there's just so much things, so much else to cover. I feel like we should, you know, no, but congratulations. The Cowboys are looking very strong, beating up on the lousy uh, JV football team. Good, good, good for the Cowboys. And good job to your Caps. One of my sons was actually at the Caps game on Thanksgiving Eve and got enjoyed his free Rock the Red turkey t-shirt. And I know you're a big Caps enthusiast, so a good weekend in sports for you. The Caps uh, eking out an exciting overtime victory as well. So lots to be thankful for for Chris Frazier on the sports front, less so for Detroit Lions fans like myself, but not relevant to today's discussion. So we'll move right past that. Gentlemen, we're here to talk about a very timely and exciting topic, I think. Exciting for geeks like us, maybe, but I think it's important for all folks to listen to this. So we're coming out of our recent Virginia elections. Chris, thank you for taking the time to join me for our, our election recap, where among other hot topics in education, school boards remain a very high visibility issue. Part of what helped our governor, uh, Glenn Youngkin, get into office back in 2021 were frustrations around education and uh, his opponent at the time, former Governor Terry McAuliffe, really angering a lot of parents. He seemed to dismiss their interests, continually putting his foot in his mouth to his, his regret. School boards have remained a very hot and divisive topic. And many counties around the Commonwealth saw newly elected officials win this month of November, including here in my neck of the woods in Loudoun, as uh, we elected an entirely new school board, some to good, some maybe not quite as good. Let's look at the CLPVA's take on education and education reform. I'm going to read the statement on education reform out. It's a bit long. Bear with me. I think just for those who are listening, good to sort of hear the way this has been written and thought through and the CLPVA's position on education reform. So just give me a second here. The culture war fight over our children's education has grown to a fever pitch and continues to impede the actual purpose of our schools, educating the next generation. To short circuit the culture war, we, CLPVA, call for implementation of school choice throughout the Commonwealth. And then in a series of bullets, the following five statements are made. Counties and cities should move to funding students rather than systems and allow funding to travel to schools based on the decisions of families rather than bureaucrats. Two, currently existing public schools should no longer have geographic exclusivity in attendance zones and should allow for choice throughout a county or city. Three, the state should cease its insistence on test-centric and test-metric educational models and instead help move all localities toward teaching to mastery. Four, teachers should not be subjected to micromanagement from state officials, nor subjected to police state level surveillance, but instead schools should be directly accountable to the families they serve. And five, we strongly oppose censorship in school libraries and other government funded or controlled institutions, including book bans, any literary media, et cetera, and oppose all political control over access to information. Gentlemen, there's a lot in there. We don't have time to take those point by point in one show, but I think most of that is uh, self-explanatory. Let's just go to the website and read more, and uh, they're welcome to reach out anyway with questions. We'll take discussion in two parts. So for today's uh, talk, let's get into this a few ways. 
I was focused on school choice, what we mean by that, some background. And, and we'll look at those first two bullets on really funding students rather than systems and the idea of geographic exclusivity. So with that, let me stop talking a little bit so I can hear from you, smart gentlemen. This issue has really become a part of the culture war, as, as the statement says. And we saw that play out in the last election, as we said. Can you peel that back some and talk about the background to school choice? What's happening in our environment? Why this push for school choice? this culture war focus on school choice, what's going on? Uh, well, yeah, it, it, this is like, obviously that's like an onion. There's a lot of layers to peel back. Uh, at, at the top of the level is that uh, we want to emphasize to people who are listening to this, that school choice already exists in, in America and it exists for uh, the rich and for the upper middle class and to a lesser extent, the uh, middle class. Uh, all of these people already have school choice. Uh, they have either the means to send themselves to private schools, or lacking that, have the means to buy uh, houses in the right uh, districts to send their kids to uh, a certain school. So, uh, when we talk about school choice, it's not something that's you know this new and uh, and out of the uh, uh, out of left field. Uh, it's something that already exists for half the upper half of the population, uh, and is denied uh, specifically to the bottom half of the population. So, when we talk about school choice. What we want to do is that we're extending that uh, concept uh, to everyone. Now, uh, when we talk about <clears throat> you know, funding uh, students, not systems, uh, again, we'll, let's take it at, at a higher level. The, it, the purpose of an education system uh, is to you know, achieve some you know, economies of scale and to educate people, is to bring you know, the children up, uh, give them a proper education so they can uh, – uh, um, you participate in society at, at a high enough level. Uh, so that, that's the function of any uh, education is basic literacy, uh, increased literacy, giving you know, ex, you know, additional skills, citizenship, citizenship, trade, scholastic, et cetera. Um, so the, the way it's been set up is in this kind of like industrial top-down model, uh, industrial education is to get people out, uh, you know, the, the massive, you know, the most people we can shove them in there, educate them in the most efficient way, just like in the industrial factory model, and ship them down the, the assembly line, and then at the end, boop, we pop out finished product. Um, <clears throat> that may have worked to the extent that it ever really did work 60, 70 years ago uh, when we had a you know, baby boom and everything was industrial and that was the way the world worked. The world doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and it really didn't work prior to uh, you know, mid 20th century uh, industrialization either. So what we're what we're dealing with is inheriting a system that's built for a very specific and particular point of time that's not really generalizable. Uh, and so a lot of the problems that we we have and we're facing right now are due to the mismatch between reality and the industrial system that we have now. So what we're saying, and when we say we want school choice and we want uh, to uh, you know, to fund students instead of systems, is we need to get the system, we need to basically inject the same sort of market discipline and you know, into education that exists everywhere. And by market discipline, I don't mean like, oh, dollars and cents, you know, profit loss, let's, you know, ruthlessly close these people, and et cetera. Uh, no, no, it's the efflorescence of entrepreneurship uh, that we're talking about with the market discipline. Uh, when people know that they have the opportunity to serve, you know, various different markets, new and 
intriguing ideas come come to the fore or get or get offered to the public. Um, <clears throat> that's what we mean by you know putting the market system. The way you get that is instead of making sure the system is funded, because then there's all these in, you know then you have entrenched interests to keep the system as is in order to keep the funding going. When you fund the people that need that are the uh, ostensible purpose of the system, they start serving them instead of the bureaucrats that you know that give them money because people will go and serve the interest of where the money comes from. So that's the that's the first part is uh, is just a philosophical change of that the the funding model comes to the demand side rather than the supply. Uh, you fund the families and the students that need to get their education, which is and that which would ultimately enable um, more tailored solutions to a lot of people's different uh, educational needs. Uh, and the exclusivity zones uh, as well, because that's part of getting a, a functional market in anything is eliminating artificial barriers uh, to trade, just like borders, uh, like tariffs and keeping out uh, goods and, and services based off an imaginary line. Uh, well, it's the right same idea. Let's just pause you for yeah. a second. Let's come back to exclusivity. Just so we can just talk through the shoelaces a little bit first, just to make sure we we explain that all the way. So, so hold, hold that thought. An important thought will come right back yeah. to it. But on on funding back, I think we call it backpack funding or shoelace funding. Funding the individual. Any additional thoughts you want to add to Brian's very good backgrounder there on where we are with school choice? Uh, not really. I mean, I agree <laughs> pretty much completely. Um, there is a. Uh, an older movie. Um, it's one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies. It's, it's a terrible movie, objectively. It's called Accepted. It's, I think, from the early uh, 2000s. Um, it stars Justin Long, Blake Lively, and, and Lewis Black. And Lewis Black's character in there has a, a quote that kind of always stuck with me when he's talking about education being a service, as in serve us. And that's really the point that Brian talked about, is we need to get away from you know funding this system and letting the system do what the system wants to do and start funding students and having a system that's responsive to the needs and the demands and in the market really uh, for uh, for what parents and, and students want. Um, so no, I, I agree pretty much entirely with exactly what Brian said. So, so, well, so I want to look at that movie because I've never seen that or heard of that, to be honest. I'm curious now, but, but just, so just to sort of put this together, guys, so we can think through it together. So really the idea here is to move funding away from government to schools right, but more to funding in some way, giving control of those funds to the user, right, to families, to students, to make their own choice about where little Sarah, little Johnny is going to go to school based on their interests, preferences, and needs. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it, it, yeah, at least creating an infrastructure that is responsive in that way. And there's, I suppose, a myriad of ways to implement that idea uh, you know it's not necessarily cashing out checks to parents saying hey here's your partition uh, of our tax dollars for your school spend it how you want you know we can have it flow through some semblance of a system but we want that system to be responsive in that way rather than just funding a you know, public school system and saying okay here here's your you know here's your budget do with it what you want um you know we, we want to make sure that we've got that marketization in there yeah, understood, understood. Brian, anything you want to add to that? Well, yeah, because the, the point is is to empower uh, families 
of the students because, as they say, nobody spends uh, your money better than you. Um, and, it's a, and just it's a very Hayekian uh, uh, concept about the, the, uh, the specific localness of, of knowledge uh, is that uh, you, ideally, obviously, uh, a family is going to know their, the, the needs of their kids better than somebody 700 miles away in an education uh, bureaucracy, no matter how well intended, no matter how well uh, um, you know, educated, however how much data, et cetera, uh, the fact remains that there is local information that just does not bubble up uh, and not in a way that's fast enough for them to, to react. So the best thing we could do is to, look, to put the locus of the funding on students. And so in, in order to keep this you know, egalitarian, uh, because right now you can do that if you have the money. Like I said, school choice already exists for the rich, uh, and, you know, and to a lesser extent the upper middle class, uh, because they can just afford to cut a check to go to a private school or to get tutors or et cetera. They can do that on their own dime. Uh, so if something isn't working for them, uh, they can go find alternatives. Uh, if you are working class or poor, you do not have that opportunity. You are stuck with the system. Uh, and so, uh, in order, any, and just as, uh, you know, as Chris was saying, there's a myriad ways of getting, uh, you know, the power of the purse towards uh, the demand side of the equation. There's lots of ways to do it other than just simply, like, oh, you're, yeah, like Chris said, cutting a check and go. Um, but the, the crux of the matter is, is that it shouldn't really matter what your socioeconomic status is. You should still have the same ability to command uh, resource, educational resources uh, as, as the next person uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, and that's what it means to get these budgets down to the people. Now, how we do that, that's you know, another big political question, but that's the goal, that's the principle. I think that's great. And I think it, a really important point, I think is worth just, just recognizing, right? This isn't to be uh, throwing stones, but just reality, whether it's issues like school choice or it's issues like bodily autonomy and, and uh, abortion rights, those with the means always have and, and will continue to have choices and they'll execute those choices when they want to. And those that don't have the means don't have flexibility. And we see that play out. We see that played out a million ways on the abortion topic. And here in school choice, you know, sadly, some of the, the loudest voices against school choice are the ones sending their children to private schools, uh, you know, from Congress and governors and others. And it's just the hypocrisy is, is frustrating. And, and it's, it's a great example of you know, the, the haves and the have nots on this very important topic. Uh, but that hypocrisy is a topic we can get into on a whole other day. So thank you for that. And now, Brian, let's come back to exclusivity, because that term's an interesting term that might not necessarily be be very clear to folks you know, hearing it. So let's talk about the idea of exclusivity and choice. What is the current situation, and what is it that CLPVA is really proposing here? Well, I mean, as most people know, it's like the, the standard uh, public school system uh, set up throughout the country is uh, geographic exclusivity. Uh, they don't have overlapping school zones. It's that you are in this school's zone or you're in that school zone, and it is a line drawn on, you know, drawn on a map by bureaucrats uh, to try and manage uh, the amount of people that are going into a school. Uh, not in the school. It is strictly about population and area and territory. Uh, so there's this drawing it on the map like 19th century colonialists. You know, it's like, all right, you have this many people, and you will serve this. Oh, we've got to balance numbers. We'll move that line over a bit, et cetera. Now, the thing is, is if you live in one, you can't just go over to another, usually. Uh, in some cases, 
there may be some wiggle room if you've got, again, unmotivated enough uh, yeah, parental unit or unmotivated enough or connected enough uh, individual that can work your way through the bureaucracy, you can get an, uh, an exception, et cetera. But for most people who don't have the time or the means or the knowledge of how to work the system, they're stuck. So, you know, the only way you're getting out is if, if, with, with money or moving. Um, and so that's, that's the thing with all public school systems that are out there, especially when you see, like, these, you know, blue ribbon, you know, ones in the upper middle class uh, you know, neighborhoods where they move in and they basically kind of, like, put a barrier around them with uh, land value prices to price out the people that they don't want in. And so you have de facto kind of this, classic, classist, um, you, know, you know, segregation amongst the, the school system. So they have a really nice school and they, you know, and I might like have a kid that would benefit from the system, you know, the stuff that they're going on there and, you know, and vice versa. There's some people in there that just don't care. You know, maybe it's, it'd be better if my, my kid could go there instead of being stuck to the one, you know, one here. So that's the idea. If you've, one, if you first start, if you've liberated the funding model so, and it, you know, so that it can go with kids, it kind of doesn't work if you're still limiting them to uh, a monopoly. Like if the elementary school is the only one that you can go to and send that money to, guess what? You're sending that money to that, that elementary school or you're sending it to a private school. You couldn't go to another elementary school, I mean, just a little bit over, you know, if you liked them, you know, the supposed public school, you know, it's public, but you like it, and you like that better. You may, maybe they've got better teachers, got a better culture, what have you, and you'd rather go there. You're not allowed to. You couldn't, you know, even if you, the money was following you around, you wouldn't be allowed to under, you know, state and local law. So that's the other side of the coin that would need to be um, addressed is breaking that territorial thing. Say, all right, all the schools that are out there, you may, you know, you can go to different schools. There's no requirement that you have to live in a district uh, in order to go to school. Um, I mean, it goes down the list. There's other things about empowering uh, uh, teachers and local school administrators, you know, to you know, to operate. We can get that into later uh, in another podcast. But uh, point being is that once you can move about freely, you know, and again, there's myriads of ways that you can come up with, like. Uh, you know, who am I going to accept? Do I get preference to the people who are nearby? You know, what am I trying to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, other political questions that we can get into. But the point is that once you have to compete in some manner for kids, you're going to start paying more attention to the quality of the experience that you're providing. Uh, and you're going to have to you know, talk to the, to the parents rather than talk at them or dictate to them. So, I mean, I think it goes back again. It's like so many things where we, you know, the consumer is, is the one we want to have be the decision maker, right? That, that's so often the case rather than giving it to groups, organizations, or some barrier between uh, people and the things that directly impact them. So appreciate that, Brian. Thank you. Chris, anything you want to add on the idea of exclusivity or, or any other ideas here on school choice? I've never understood why the idea of choice in education is such a radical notion or so it's perceived we have choice in virtually every other aspect of the market we have choice in higher education whether we go where we go how much we pay what services we want and what services we deem are worth a certain amount 
we have choice in where we shop. Imagine a geographical zone that you were put into. You were, you were gerrymandered into this district and you said you were told you have to shop at this grocery store. This is the only choice that you get. And so now we have a system, as Brian mentioned, where we are not serving the customer. We are not responding to any sort of demand. You're just up and running. You're maintaining a status quo, a system. You're, you're being funded. You're, you're said, you know, you're told this is how you're going to operate. And that's how you operate from a bureaucratic perspective, a centralized idea. Brian mentioned, you know, or one of you mentioned uh, the idea that you, you can't have all the information in that centralized manner. It, information is inherently distributive in nature. It's decentralized. Um, and so why we think that having these centralized bureaucratic authorities down to a geographic zone makes any sense is, is beyond me. And so I, I've never really understood the pushback against choice. We're, we're literally just saying individuals, families, they have a choice of you know, how they raise and, and educate their, their child. You know, we, uh, my wife and I have been shopping uh, for daycares. You know, we're expecting our first child in February. And so we've been going around touring different daycares and, and, you know, comparing the quality and the safety of one versus, you know, against the price uh, and, and the location. And we're not restricted to the nearest daycares to us. In fact, the one that uh, we're probably going to settle on is the furthest of the ones that we looked at. Uh, but that's our choice. We have that, that option. And, you know, of course, this is not a publicly funded good, but I think it's comparable, uh, you know, when we start discussing the infrastructure. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it just makes no sense to me why there's so much pushback against this choice. And there's a lot of concerns about, you know, well, is this going to hurt the public school system? And it, strictly speaking, it, it should. It should hurt the system that we have. It should hurt the status quo. That's what we want. You know, we want to change things. We want to make things better because we look at it as an opportunity to improve. You know, we're not out there trying to destroy education. Um, you know, we don't take the conservative Republican approach that uh, you know, education is bad and that highly educated people are just elitists who are out to destroy some sort of way of life. Uh, much the opposite. My wife is an educator. I think it's critical. I, I actually would love to be considered part of that, you know, elitist group that conservatives so so complain about uh, often and highly educated and, and you know, intellectual people. Um, we actually want to improve that. Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways that you can do this where you can sort of protect the integrity of a school, you know, give it a floor. You can provide some sort of baseline funding to make sure that a school can be up and running, that it's safe, that it's clean, that it's healthy for students, and that we can maintain that that baseline semblance of, of the system and, you know, provide something like vouchers to distribute the remainder of the funding and the bulk of the funding so that from that perspective, we have a, a competitive marketplace that, you know, like Brian talked about, where there is that responsiveness to the demand and, and the innovation in the same way that you see in pretty much every other market. And I say that with an asterisk. I know, unfortunately, we have a cronious uh, corporate market in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, the ideal is a free market in education and, and choice for families. Yeah, Chris, I, I really like the, the grocery store sort of comparison there, you know, here in, in my neck of the woods, I've probably got, I can think six or seven, very, very close, very reasonable to get to grocery stores that I could choose from and add in home delivery. And that's maybe sort of the uh, homeschool equivalent in, uh, in groceries, right? And 
I go to the one that's closest to me and there's, there's ones that are fancier, more options. They look nicer. The deli's bigger, whatever. I like the one that's closest, good enough for me. It satisfies my needs. It's, it's the best fit for me. And I think when it comes to sort of the impact of public schools, I think we see a lot of similar choices being made. I think people would be given choice. I think a lot of folks probably still would go to their sort of local school, but you're allowing them to make that decision as opposed to being forced upon them. As you spoke to earlier, right? We can make what the best decision for ourselves and if somebody as in your daycare situation, wants to, you know, take take the uh, extra 30 minutes to get Marcus to the school if they want to get Marcus to, they can do that. It's giving the flexibility to do what's best for them. I don't think it's the death bell for, you know, local schools or public schools, but it really is about choice and doing what's best, you know, balance-wise for, for you, your family. I think grocery store is a really great comparison. You brought up the topic of public funding, which is one of the frequent sort of calls of concern. I think, you know, part of the reason why you get frustrated with that argument is, you know, there are a lot of pushback, for example, from from, from uh, teachers unions and others that are, you know, fighting to, to oppose school choice. But I'm going to just bring up real briefly one other topic that comes up in opposition. So I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there are, you know, different voices. The public school funding is one of those arguments. I disagree with it. I think we all disagree with it, but, it, but I'm glad you raised it. Another one that comes up from time to time is on the idea that if people can start choosing their schools, um, that it could lead to racially segregated schools, right? And the Institute of Health has noted that this occurs, even parents don't think they care about race, but it just sort of, it seems to happen. And so is that a concern? Should we be concerned about potentially deliberate or, or whatever else causes it? Racial segregation, where you're starting to see schools compartmentalized based on race or ethnicity, is that a concern we should be worried about with school choice? Well, uh, I'll just bring up a, a, a few points uh, before diving into that is that uh, we already see that right now in, in, the, uh, in a lot of the hypocritical uh, you know, choice, anti-choice people that they send themselves, they say, they, oh, I want diverse public schools, and then they send them to essentially a lily white uh, uh, private school. Um, that happens all the time. Uh, so that, that exists now, and it exists in, uh, in the elite uh, where the you know the, the things that they're accusing you know, the regular people of uh, like oh that's going to happen they're already doing but uh, I mean and we see that not to a great extent I mean because yes clearly there are some that are you know sending to and the uh, the ethnic com you know composition uh, is very skewed in one way uh, or another um, you, so that's one aspect of choice we don't see that like widespread. I mean, and there are intentionally uh, very uh, diverse cosmopolitan schools uh, that put that out as, as their, uh, their calling card. It's a, it's, you know, you come here, we're going to expose, we're intentionally expose them to lots of different cultures, lots of different this, that, and the other thing, you know, et cetera. Um, so that already exists, and it's, it's not caused a uh, sort of, um, it's not a meltdown of elite society. Uh, for that uh, that existing, uh, and uh, to uh, you know, so now to address the other one about if there's unintentional segregation, um, and uh, and yes, that can lead to some uh, you know some bad knock-on social effects. That's that's not you know that's not sugarcoated. Um, that's you know that part of the reasons why you know the the bad old days or the bad old days were precisely because you know. You know, there's one ethnicity that's shunted over here by law, uh, and they're not over there. They don't they don't touch, and that helps with the uh, the state enforced authorization. The thing, the key difference here is that is is noting that that was state mandated. 
Um, when things come out of people's choices, uh, you, you, then you have to kind of like wonder, is there animus? Is there uh, an intentional otherization that's going on uh, versus something that just happens to occur or something that's uh, not animus and other, otherizing but still a way of, you know, provide, you know, there's another benefit to having, uh, you know, basically one ethnicity, you know, kind of school or a, domin a different domination, you know, et cetera, for other reasons that don't have, that don't feed into the, you know, racial hierarchization, uh, animus and otherization. I think in general that American society uh, at its best is enough, is cosmopolitan enough uh, in all of its other aspects, that we can weather it. some of these things that we might see, like seem uh, suboptimal in some ways, because the rest of society can kind of like balance that out. And, and I think the key is making sure that it's not uh, um, that it's not animus driven, and that it's not uh, you know based on some sort of intentional otherization. Because uh, that would be that would be you know worthy of you know public scrutiny if you're trying to set up you know use public funds to anti-social purposes. But again, that's a political question that comes up you know comes over later. And uh, just with all these other things, you don't want to use edge cases to uh, as a wedge against the 80 percent, you know, the 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 20 percent, the 10 percent, the 5 percent, no matter how. Like, oh, that's horrible, and we can agree that's all terrible, but we don't let the five and the ten and the twenty drive the eighty. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I think there's some good points, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. But Chris, anything you'd like to add on that topic? So the idea that school choice is going to lead to highly racially or ethnically, religiously segregated schools is uh, an assumption and a projection. It is what opponents of school choice say they think will happen. Now, we don't have a broad school choice system, so we can't definitively say whether it is or whether it isn't. Uh, but it is purely at this point a hypothetical. And in order to say that, what the opponents of school choice have to do is they have to project a broad sense of racism on society at large. They have to say that, well, people at large are racist and therefore will you know, choose to put their kids in, in you know, an all-white school or, you know, something like that. Um, so I, I don't accept that notion of society at large. So that doesn't have too much weight to me, that argument. Now, by contrast, let's take a look at what we actually have in the systems that we, we currently have. I grew up near the city of Petersburg, Virginia, which is a minority majority city. I think something like 75% of the population is black. The schools there are infamously terrible. <laughs> they are the poster child for terrible city schools. And the, the opponents of school choice say, well, too bad if you grow up in a neighborhood with terrible schools, you, you have to go there. I mean, you know, Black children in, in those city schools can't go anywhere else. They, they have no other options because of where they're born. They just they have to suck it up. And that's what they're dealt with. How is that serving minority communities to say, well, tough luck? You know, you, you, you lack the foresight to be born in a better 
geographic location. So too bad for you, right? We want to re-engineer a system that allows students to move to better schools, that we provide the funding where it needs to be to give parents and students that choice, right? So those schools are highly segregated, but that's not by anyone's choice, that's by mandate. And you know, Brian's talked about this. We're mandating this type of segregation, you know, that, that just because the geographical population is, is you know, one, one statistic, you know, we're enforcing that statistic on the school, whether that's a good thing or not. So, you know, we're, we're state mandating segregation and you can, we can go down a rabbit hole of, uh, you know, the history of, of the city of Petersburg and, you know, all the all the damage that the state has done uh, to that city and it has put it in the situation that it's in. Um, but we've got government segregation of schools already going on and it's not serving anyone. Um, so, you know, the opponents of school choice want to throw out these hypotheticals and ignore the realities that we have. Um, I, I don't accept the hypotheticals and I don't quite enjoy the realities that we have. So, uh, you know, all that's really lost on me. Uh, those arguments, they, they hold no weight. Um, I think that, you know, society is, is progressing. Uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but we're progressing in the right direction. And, and I just don't accept the notion that, you know, given the, the choice to put your kids in a certain school, your, you know, primary instinct is going to be, all right, let's, let's go with an all white school or an all black school or something ridiculous of that nature. Um, you know, and, and, even if, you know, let's say we, you know, we, we pushed through school choice and we started seeing problems like this, let's remedy that where, where we see it, you know, let's cross that bridge when we get there. I, I don't think that's going to be a problem that we face, but just to say that, well, this is one possible, you know, negative impact. So therefore we shouldn't entertain the idea at all. is just absurd to me. Yeah, I, think, I, think the, I want to ta yeah, just tap in here to, to make another point on this is that, uh, a lot of the anti-choice uh, folks say, oh, there's going to be creaming. Uh, the, 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 the best kids are going to all concentrate uh, in, in the best school. It's going to leave you know, people behind. There's going to be no funding for the people that require the most uh, effort, et cetera, et cetera. I want to point out that that's, that's the existing system that we have right now. Uh, with the geographic exclusivity, uh, you already have that except you know, in movement. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was the whole idea of like white flight uh, from, the, uh, from the inner cities. And because of the uh, geographic exclusivity uh, and the way we fund public schools primarily through, uh, through uh, uh, real estate taxes, is uh, it, it already did, the, the rich people you know, that are able to afford you know, the, you know, to live in the neighborhoods near a good school, these schools are already essentially working under the, you know, the, the, the boogeyman of the, of the choice system. They're funded by the increased land value. So they have more money and more resources simply by the you know, nature of the fact that the people that live around them. So you're already getting creaming. You're already getting uh, draining funds from, you know, for, because of the, the way we have, because of the system that we have, the geographic exclusivity models that are funded by real estate taxes. If you change the funding model and you make it broader, you know, either regional, state, what have you, you can get away from that. I mean, that's an important thing to, you know, to consider, that the existing status quo already does what they claim school choice would do in the future.
Yeah, and that's that's the exact conversation I had. Um, Chris Stewart is an education activist, a proponent of school choice. And before I uh, pretty much jumped off of uh, the, the platform for leaning on Twitter, he and I would, would exchange notes pretty frequently on school choice topics and didn't agree with everything. He's, he's got some strong opinions on both issues and people, but he's been a loud black voice on school choice. And he's on several podcasts, including one uh, called Eight Black Hands with other educators. It's a good discussion. And I raised this concern with him and he basically said, hey, it's happening already, right? So you want to fight a boogeyman for a problem that may exist. It's a problem that does exist. And so, you know, the, the question is sort of already based in a sort of false idea that we're creating something that isn't already present in society today. As a Black American, he, that wasn't really a big concern for him. Um, so I, it, was, it was a good conversation, good exchange. I hope he gets on threads later and I can start harassing him more frequently. But I think there's a lot to debate about on these issues. There, there are some objections some are worth digging into. Some are fear-mongering, as we often see when it comes to changing the status quo. Good discussion, man. I appreciate the perspective on these first parts of the educational platform. We'll come back next week to continue this discussion. I think we've got uh, some more on education reform we want to get into before we, before we move on. So we'll continue this in a part two. Any final words or thoughts you'd like to just uh, leave listeners with on this topic of school choice before we move off today and get into phase two next time? Uh, yeah, it's that school and education are very, very difficult and complex systems. Is the people have, uh, people have been trying new new things. Uh, you know, they work in some places and they don't scale. Uh, it, it, education is a phenomenally complex uh, uh, issue, and so the thing that we have to keep in mind, the, the grain of salt, with all discussions about uh, you know school, even with school choice, et cetera. There are, a, you know, as you say, myriads. There's a, you know, a thousand ways to skin the cat. Um, we don't need to be hung up so much on any particular iteration of a policy that you might have heard and say, that's the way we have to do it. That's it. And you know, that's what's go what we're going to do. We need to focus on the principle, the guiding star. And the guiding star is putting more power and resources directly in the hands you know, and under the direction of the people that need it and the people who are going to be using it and let that drive the, uh, the, the system that goes forward rather than people at the top telling people down you know, below, this is how it's going to be and you need to conform. Yeah, that, that, that applies to so much, Brian. That applies to so much. Well said. Chris, any, any final thoughts on education that you'd like to share before we, before we break? I think Brian summed that up very nicely that you know, we don't want to tie ourselves down to any specific implementation. You know, we have our ideas and we have certain policies that we do propose to improve the system, but that doesn't mean we have a specific, you know, holistic system we'd like to replace it with. Um, but we want people to be open to the idea of introducing choice into education, because really there is very little, if any, choice at all in the entire system. Uh, and I just want people to have it on their minds that think about what other service operates in the same way that our public edu education system does. You know, just imagine every time you, you go out and you pay for a service or you buy a good, imagine if that same product were only attainable the same way that the public education was and, you know, what would be the ramifications of that and how that would you change your experience. And, you know, does that model that, that we have really make any sense? Because I think the argument that we're making is that no, it, it doesn't.
Yeah, and I think I think it's an argument that's being made around the country. We're seeing school choice uh, gain support in in more states. Some passing changes, some seriously debating it. At the end of the day, I think you know we're looking for incremental wins here, right? And anything that moves us closer to freedom and choice is probably a good thing. Anything that moves towards centralization and a lack of choice is probably not a great thing. It's a, it's a important topic. I'll save more on that for another time. As we got to wrap things up today, gentlemen. Thank you. And uh, good topic, good discussion. Again, we'll come back for part two next week. Final final chance, guys. Just anything else you want to throw out there, not related to school choices, anything else you want to put on people's radars, anything else got your attention this week as we uh, close out the pod? Um, I made it on Blue Sky, finally. So I can leave the dumpster fire that is Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, um, so folks can go out there and follow me on Blue Sky if you're on there. Yeah, we will. You know, Chris, I'll make sure to share your Blue Sky handle in the uh, the notes. Glad to see you there. I still split my attention between Threads and Blue Sky. I like Blue Sky, but it's, it's just hard to do both. But, uh, but I'm, on, I'm on both. I'm glad you're there. And yeah, if you can put Twitter in the rearview mirror, it's a, probably a good day. So congratulations on that. <laughs> I forgot how to do the invitations thing on Blue Sky, too. I still didn't crack that code. Brian, anything you want to throw out there uh, as we wrap up? Uh, yeah, just the, you know, the international, uh, things that, uh, you know, just tell you that, uh, when viewed through the American lens, they don't make much sense. Like with the, uh, the, the presidency in Argentina, the, uh, elections in Poland, the elections in the Netherlands, um, all three are very specific to the countries that they're in. Uh, there's more nuance there if you actually dive in and listen to them. But of course, uh, the United States media, uh, mainstream media is painting them only through, the current uh, zeitgeist lens, like, oh, well, he's MAGA, they're MAGA, they're not MAGA. Uh, and it's way better slash worse in some cases. And you really have to go and dive into the specific, uh, to the specifics of there. But uh, I just wanted to point out that it, the, the Argentinian elections, they have proportional representation uh, in there. So somebody of like uh, his, let's say eccentricity, his party has, yeah, thirteen percent of the uh, the legislature, which you know we're all saying, oh, that's not much. That's amazing from an American context. And you know everybody's talking about, oh, the far right guy in the Netherlands, he won a very you know, sub one third. <laughs> he has there 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 has to be a coalition uh, there. So there's an extent that a lot of his you know things are going to be worn away from the open coalition process again, driven by list proportional representation as they have there. Same way in Poland. He, you know, if he, if he had first passed the post, you'd have a quasi-fascist party that would have won with 40% of the vote. However, 60%, you know, well, a little over 50% of the people voted for a coalition of liberal parties. Again, proportional representation. We have, when you have proportional representation, interesting and sometimes great things can happen. And the bad things can be ameliorated because of the, the, the nature the nature of the proportional representation in an open system of elections gives to you know the third parties, alternative voices, et cetera, which forces coalition, which forces moderation. Important thing to think about. Definitely important thing to think about. We'll share some links from those elections, a lot of fear mongering in the titles that have been thrown around here as you, as you spoke to, Brian. Really appreciate that and appreciate the uh, sort of throwback to our recent discussions on election reform as well. And we look forward to the CLPVA getting 13% representation in Virginia's Congress as well. So 
on to brighter days. Gentlemen, we'll continue this conversation next week. And I think we'll wrap things up for today right there. So to all of our friends who are listening, thank you for being with us for this discussion on classical liberalism and ideas on a more open Virginia. We're really glad to have you with us as we finish up November and move to this final month of 2023 here with next week's podcast. Please consider joining the CLPVA and helping us to fight for a better Virginia, including school choice. Thanks for being part of this community. And until next week, here's to open markets, open minds, and free people. Cheers.